Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of episode to the kind of thing I've been doing so far this season. And um, I did say last week that it was a bridging episode uh, from my theme on mental health to my new theme on evaluation. That is coming, but it might be a slightly longer bridge than I thought, because I I am bursting to tell you the stuff we've got coming up today. And who knows, there may be a few others. Um, We'll uh, we'll see what happens. Um, But the evaluation theme is coming. Now, I don't tend to talk in any detail about the kinds of specific impacts I'm trying to achieve from my environmental research, because I know that most of you aren't actually interested in the specifics. It's about what you can apply in your own context, which in most cases is very different to the kind of research that I do. But I do have this uh, other half of what I do. Yeah, I study uh, impact, but I also study environmental governance. And every now and then, someone holds a mirror up to you and you see your own attempts to achieve impact in a new light and realise how much more you could and should be doing. And so I wonder how many of us are tinkering at the edges of an issue that we don't have the confidence to tackle head on. And that's what I'd like you to reflect on as I share what I've realised about my own attempts to achieve benefits for the environment from my research. But of course, the environment is something that we should all be taking responsibility for. So my hope is that in addition to reflecting on what more you can do in terms of your own research impacts, you might also reflect on whether you might be able to do more to help the environment. So hold the mirror up to your own research and impact and ask yourself if you are really doing all you can to make a difference. For me, The Mirror was a book, and I don't think this is overblowing it to say that it has changed my life. It has certainly transformed how I think, and I don't think I've ever said that about a book before. Uh, The book is Less Is More by Jason Hickel. And uh, the thing that surprised me, I think, the most was that I knew about three quarters of the stuff that he'd written about. It just hadn't ever been fully connected in my brain before, and that's what he did. Uh, In fact, I now realise that I'd actually allowed a number of prejudices to cloud my thinking so that I wasn't able to connect all of these things together. Uh, And as a result of those prejudices, uh, the message that had been sitting there in plain sight for so many years was obscured. 
And so, in case you dismiss this episode before I even start, I want to challenge the same prejudice I had head-on, in case this is something that you have as well. And it is the belief that capitalism, for all of its failings, is here to stay, and has actually given us all the things we value most in society, from a free NHS in the UK to roofs over our heads, and that without capitalism we would lose all these things and end, up, and end up in a communist state like we saw in the USSR or in Eastern Europe. But this book questions these basic assumptions. Life expectancy and well-being are not in fact linked to GDP, as we would have been told. They are in fact linked to the provision of sanitation, universal healthcare and education. We just think that there's a link to GDP because we think richer countries have higher life expectancy and well-being than less developed countries. But if they do, this isn't because of the level of GDP these countries enjoy, but because of the extent to which they've been able to invest in sanitation, healthcare and education, compared to the poorest countries of the world. The amount of GDP we currently have is way more than we need to provide these basic needs and rights. And it turns out that countries with significantly lower levels of GDP that we think of as developing countries often have higher life expectancy and well-being than rich nations if they have enough GDP to be able to prioritise these basic needs. So Costa Rica, Chile, both have life expectancies of 81 years, which I'm pretty sure is the same as the UK, higher, notably, than the uh, life expectancy of 79 in the USA. Many, many countries tried to prioritise these needs and rights after independence, but they ended up getting into debt, primarily, however, due to corruption rather than overspending on the needs of their populations. But they were then, of course, forced to withdraw funding from public services and open their economies to international investment under the IMF's structural adjustment programmes of the 1980s, with the promise that this would grow their GDP and give them the money to pay for these services. Now, the problem, of course, with this approach, as with any approach based on growing GDP, is that private companies need profit. And so, while they may create jobs, they tend to do so at the lowest possible cost, which is why we see so much of the world's economic activity happening in countries with low wages and limited protections for, for workers all to grow the profits of corporations based in the richest countries, whose profits lead to the accumulation of even more wealth for the world's richest people. So, rather than helping these countries out from, uh, from debt, the liberal liberalisation of their economies turned them into the very thing they'd been trying to escape from under colonialism profit-generation machines for the richest countries, who could now legally exploit the resources and labour of these countries without consequence. But as we extract more and more resources from these countries, we have this belief that the resources will always be there, and that there is an endless supply of material. 
But when you consider how many resources we would need to build enough solar panels and wind farms to switch from fossil fuels to renewables and to switch to electric cars, the numbers are staggering. And these resources all come from mines, typically in the developing world, where, as I've said, working conditions are often brutal. And here's the real problem. Long before we actually run out of these materials, we will have caused irreversible ecological damage. I think it's important to understand some of the figures for this, so I'm going to quote Jason Hickel here. He writes, Mining has become one of the biggest single drivers of deforestation, ecosystem collapse, and biodiversity loss around the world. Ecologists estimate that even at present rates of global material use, we are overshooting sustainable levels by 82%. Take silver, for instance. Mexico is home to the Panasquito mine, one of the biggest silver mines in the world. Covering nearly 40 square miles, the operation is staggering in its scale. A sprawling open pit complex ripped into the mountains, flanked by two waste dumps each a mile long, and a tailings dam full of toxic sludge held back by a wall that's seven miles around and as high as a 50-storey skyscraper. This mine will produce 11,000 tonnes of silver in, t in 10 years before its reserves, the biggest in the world, are gone. To transition the global economy to renewables, we need to commission up to 130 more mines on the scale of Penasquito, just for silver. And that's the end of my quote from uh, from Jason Hickel. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. What about uh, recycling, uh, the circular economy, <laughs> uh, a, a common riposte to this? Uh, that's the answer. Uh, we think it's okay to keep using more materials because the circular economy will save us. And we're all recycling more than we've ever done before. But the percentage of materials that are recycled is actually going down at the moment. Not because we're recycling less, but because we're using more and more material resources. So take silver as our example, we're currently only recycling 18% of the world's silver that's extracted every year. And as our use of silver in car batteries skyrockets, that figure is likely to go steadily down rather than up. So yeah, recycling is important, but it's part of the problem if it convinces us that we can just keep consuming more materials because we can just recycle them. So what can we do about all this? Communism is clearly not the answer, and nobody is suggesting that it might be. Again, the idea that the alternative to capitalism is communism, I would argue, is propaganda to protect the capitalist machine against anyone who might question it. It turns out, in fact, that there are loads of way, ways we could reorganise our economy in a post-capitalist way. For example, 
uh, a few of these. Uh, the first uh, that uh, struck me from the book was the idea of nationalising banks so that only the government lends money based on its reserves and it can do so without interest or at least at a rate that's designed to just cover the cost of administering the loans because it lends in the public interest. It's a public good for people to be able to afford their mortgages and not be at the mercy of rate increases from the bank. But in our current system, banks are allowed to charge eye-watering levels of interest. At 3% interest over 25 years, you have to pay a bank over £100,000 for the privilege of getting a mortgage of £250,000. There's no way the banks need that amount of money to administer your loan. It is almost all profit. And what's the social good of letting banks charge such eye-watering fees? Who gets that money? And what if instead we were to invest that in schools or health or simply not charge it in the first place? Uh, there is evidence uh, that uh, moving to a four-day week can increase health and well-being more than increasing someone's salary, easing the pressure on physical and mental health services. And as long as it doesn't impact your salary, you should feel better off as you'll have a day less childcare and commuting to pay for. Uh, we all experienced this during COVID when we got to work from home. And there's no reason that moving to a four-day week should affect your salary, given the evidence that people working a four-day week are significantly more productive and efficient. So much so that a Henley Business School study in 2021 estimated that UK businesses would save a combined £104 billion a year if a four-day week was implemented across the entire workforce. Uh, idea three is that we can take important services back into public ownership. We have this belief that competition will make services better, but I don't know anyone who thinks that trains are any more reliable or comfortable since they've been privatised in the UK, but everyone agrees that they're now unaffordable and are the reason why so many people continue to drive or take internal flights. What benefits did any of us get from privatising water companies? But now rich investors get to extract profits from all of us for our access to the most fundamental human need. If we didn't have to pay as much as we do for all these things, we would be able to afford a four-day week. Fourth uh, is another way of achieving this, which is universal basic income which you could use to take your extra day at the weekend. Um, uh, so I'm having now my four-day week and I'm paying for that um, because I've got that universal basic income. That's enough uh, to be able to take that extra day without having to take any hit on my salary. Uh, or depending on the amount that you actually need to live, potentially you could afford not to work at all. Uh, but uh, what about all the workers we need to staff our services? Well, most people actually choose to continue working, even if, actually, uh, they've got enough money from a universal basic income to potentially quit. They just work less. And we would all need less workers if we weren't consuming so much. The idea that people will just sit around and drink themselves into oblivion is, I would argue, a prejudice 
prejudice that has been cultivated since the Industrial Revolution, when industrialists argued that the poor were lazy and immoral in their regular feast days and lazing around and celebrations, and that forcing them to work would be good for their souls. <laughs> Uh, next idea is, uh, what about banning advertising? Uh, this one came kind of left field to me. Um, uh, but uh, companies would easily be able to afford higher taxes to pay for a measure like universal income if they didn't have to spend so much money on advertising. And as it happens, companies where people work less hours have less advertising because it is less effective. People are happier, so they know they don't need all the stuff that's being marketed at them. And most of the things that are marketed uh, are, are actually uh, things uh, that we don't need anyway. Uh, we all need to eat, but how often do we see whole foods advertised? Farmers are being screwed down to the lowest possible price for their produce by supermarkets and food processors who are making all the profits, and it's them who have the advertising money, and so who are in charge of the narratives we hear. We're all capable of shopping around to see which products, products we prefer or who has the lowest prices without having to be told through adverts. At best, they're unnecessary, but at worst, they persuade people that their two-year-old phone is no longer good enough and that they need to find enough money to upgrade to the latest version of whatever it is that we actually don't need but we're told by advertisers, advertisers we do. Which leads to another post-capitalist policy, one that's been debated in EU Parliament recently. Ending planned obsolescence. How often have you been told something is not worth fixing because you can buy a new one cheaper? Part of the reason is that manufacturers make the parts inaccessible or too expensive to fix because they want to sell more new units. One of the stories you hear if you go around a whiskey distillery, and I do live in uh, malt whiskey distilling country, is the story of Porteous Mills, a Scottish company that made malt mills that never broke down or needed replacing. And once they reached market saturation, they collapsed because their mills were too good, and they're still working perfectly to this day. Others have learned from this. If you want to sell more products, make sure they break down and need replacing. And if they, if, if they can be fixed, make sure the part is too expensive to justify fixing it, like the drum bearings in washing machine drums, a small mechanical part that, if replaced, could double the lifetime of your appliance. And it would be cheap and easy to replace if it wasn't sealed into the tub, requiring you to replace the entire unbroken tub with it. <sighs> uh, or how about this uh, as a post-capitalist policy? Controversial, but, uh, but just think about this for a moment. A cap on earnings and wealth. So if you earn over £100,000 per year, why not move to a 100% tax rate for those people? Even if you move that to half a million, you could bring in significant amounts of tax without causing any pain. You can live very comfortably indeed on a six-figure salary. And the same applies to wealth. 58% of the world's population currently live in poverty, but a dozen billionaires have more than all their wealth combined. 
Put another way, the top 1% of households globally own 43% of all personal wealth, while the bottom 50% only own 1%. It is these richest people who are driving emissions disproportionately with their regular air travel and consumption of the latest products. Simply by redistributing this wealth, we could pay for the sanitation, healthcare and education that we know could increase life expectancy and help pe pull people out of poverty around the world. But each of these policies simply do two things. They reduce our need to buy or pay for things we shouldn't have to spend money on, and they mean that we don't have to work as hard to make money to pay for all the stuff we don't need. Simple. <laughs> Degrowth, as it's called, isn't about taking a vow of poverty. It's about not consuming stuff we don't need and refocusing the purpose of our lives not on being more productive so we can consume more, but on the things that really matter. People think that the alternative to capitalism is communism, but as China has so effectively shown us, communism is a political system, not an economic system. They combine communist policies with a capitalist economy. So instead of looking for examples in communism, if we want to get a sense of what might be possible, we need to look no further than Scottish government's decision to ret retain free prescriptions and free university education when the rest of the UK started charging for these. I know nobody in Scotland, where I live, who would ever want to give these rights up. Or look at the level of public services people get in Scandinavian countries. Or the health and well-being of people in countries like Costa Rica and Chile. None of these countries need to restrict the personal liberty of their population to achieve these things. And that's not what has ever been proposed. And if you're worried that raising taxes on corporations and wealthy people will lead to economic collapse, then I would argue you've fallen a victim to the rhetoric that these very people have fed us through the media machine. We're told that uh, there would be a mass exodus. Uh, we were told, in fact, that there was going to be a mass exodus of, uh, of companies from Scotland to England if we voted for independence back in 2015, which I didn't believe for one minute. And then we were told that there would be a mass exodus if we voted for Brexit, which I confess I did believe, but the reality is that Brexit has, yes, contributed to a shrinking of our economy, but only by a bit. We are still functioning okay as an economy. And for those who voted for Brexit, clearly that was a price worth paying. In the same that I would argue a minor contraction of the Scottish, Scottish economy, were that to happen, would be a price worth paying for independence. The same threats were made over every other country that sought independence from Britain over the years. And even if their economies were and are weaker as a result, which I'm going to suggest is arguable, nobody would suggest that losing their independence again would be a price worth paying to increase their GDP. Ultimately, based on data from countries like Costa Rica and Chile, we could probably contract our economy significantly in terms of GDP if we use the GDP we have to pay for things that increase well-being rather than just pursuing growth to make the rich richer. Why is the idea of an economy that's no longer growing, or in fact that's contracting, so terrifying to us all? 
It is because we've been told that we'll all be poor if the economy isn't growing. But planned degrowth would be about reducing the unnecessary profit that primarily goes into the pockets of rich investors and putting more money in the pockets of ordinary people. And we would, I would argue, all actually feel better off. So who would like to feel better off and get to work less? Surely a vast majority of us would vote for a manifesto that gave us these things. But the problem is that no political party is prepared to give us these choices because they know they will never win. Any politician in the UK who comes anywhere near any of these policies is instantly characterised as a dangerous communist who will destroy the economy and with it our prosperity and our way of life. In reality, the only people who are threatened by a manifesto like this are the super rich. But it just so happens that they've got enough money to control the media machine. It explains a lot. Most people in the UK are fiercely protective of our national health service and can't understand how a developed country like the United States still has a system where your ability to get treated when you're sick depends on how rich you are and that US people are happy to pay, to pay so much despite knowing that the healthcare companies are making obscene profits. And yet, whenever anyone tries to challenge the system in America, the media mobilises to warn people of the dangers of a national health service and why they will all be worse off. It's the same around the world when any politician attempts to undermine the ways in which the rich grow richer. In theory, the solution to capitalism should be politics, but this would only work if there was a true democracy, where people had access to all the evidence and could make a free choice about the policies that would benefit the majority of people. But it's clear to me that the stranglehold that the media has over the information we receive will prevent us in the West from ever voting for governments that could do anything fundamental about the system they've inherited. The best we can do at this point is not listen to the media so that it has less of a stranglehold. Although I'm encouraged by my children's generation's avoidance of mainstream media, this is something that's going to take a long time to work through. In the meantime, we have to take our own steps to become more self-aware and start making better decisions in our own lives. And that's deeper than just an intellectual decision to consume less. It's about awakening our spirits and becoming more aware of our deep dependency on the natural world. And so the surprising conclusion of this book is that the solution to capitalism is not political, but spiritual. If we want to replace capitalism, we need to understand where it came from. And it didn't come out of a void. It came out of a concerted effort to convince us that we are separate from and superior to nature. That nature is scary and needs to be tamed and brought into use for the benefit of humans. To tackle the cause of the disease that is killing the planet, we need to go back to a way of being that predates capitalism and that survives in some indigenous communities around the world to this day. To explain, Jason Hickel tells a story about the Achua tribe in the Amazon who puzzled anthropologists for years. 
They practice slash-and-burn agriculture, surrounded by and depending on the forest. They consider the animals to be their brothers and sisters, and the plants to be their children, each with a soul that must be treated with respect. And yet they have no word for nature. Why could this be? Well, the answer, turns out, is kind of obvious. We have, to, we have to have a word for nature because we are separate from nature. It's out there. But if you are part of nature, then there is no us and them. It is all one, and you don't need a word for nature. And that's why decolonizing our language, words like the word stakeholder, as I've spoken about in this podcast, is not just about being politically correct. It's about tackling a deeper spiritual malaise at the heart of how we see the world. As connected beings who are all equal, whether human or not human, not our stakeholders. Christians talk of the fall as a historical event. Uh, this is the fall of uh, Adam and Eve, and that because of this we are all born sinners and need redemption. But what I think this is getting at is the innate selfishness of our animal being that prioritises our survival over all else. Instead, we are called to overcome our evolution, to become fully human, and no longer serve the animal's selfish drive to prioritise our own individual survival, or the survival of our own group, to see ourselves as connected to all other groups in society and all other species and prioritise the survival of a connected whole. The story of the fall is a story of pride and how pride always comes before a fall. And now we are falling as a species because we thought we were clever enough to change nature for our benefit, wiping out species that might harm us or our livestock, rerouting and damming rivers, compensating for loss by building new habitats elsewhere because we're clever enough to uproot and replant entire ecosystems. We've got too big for our boots. We were all born one with nature, connected to the divine, but our pride got in the way. To tackle the spiritual roots of capitalism, we need to each examine the roots of our own pride and start seeing ourselves as just one small part of a bigger whole rather than as the centre of the universe or the pinnacle of creation. And so back to the mirror I've held up to myself throughout this episode. I think I'm part of the solution because I'm working on the development and regulation of ecosystem markets that could help provide nature-based solutions to climate change. Some of the stuff that I'm doing in my new centre, SRUC. But of course, this is just one small part of a complex system that needs to be transformed. And I've always seen that as somebody else's job. I can only focus on the one small part of the system for which I have evidence and expertise. And you might argue that that's all we can ever do as academics, and that's fine if that's what you see when you hold the mirror up to what you're trying to achieve in terms of impact. But what I see is falling short of what I now see is actually needed. Now, partly I think my reticence to take this any further than I have ever done to date is that I don't want to share my politics. I keep these to myself and I want to present myself as apolitical, neutral, independent, unbiased, objective. 
I've always thought it's important, as someone who works closely with governments in the UK and internationally, as they might not trust me if they knew my political beliefs. But in reality, I now see this position has been, in part, expedience, I don't want to compromise my influence, and in part, fear. I don't like confrontation, and I don't want to create political enemies. I've never actually believed that there is any such thing as objectivity or independence in research. And I say this as a conservationist by training, a discipline that wears its values on its sleeves. In the current debate over innovation zones in England, depending on the questions you ask, you may draw on evidence that such a policy would create new jobs and stimulate local economies. However, you could draw on research to show the impact this would have on nature and the broader impact of pursuing compound economic growth on our ability to meet net zero targets. In research, as in policy, the answers you get depend on the questions you ask, and these in turn reflect your values. As a conservationist, despite what I have maintained publicly, it turns out that I took sides long ago on the question of economic growth versus protecting the natural world. Although I'd like to argue that protecting the environment should be a cross-party issue that is not politicised, politicised, <laughs> it is impossible to escape the reality that any decision between economic growth and reducing emissions is an inherently political decision. Now that I've resigned from my government roles, um, uh, as I explained last month uh, when I spoke about my decision to pull out of face-to-face -face engagements, uh, I've joined the Scottish Greens. Uh, I'm supporting Yes Scotland uh, and, uh, and helping fund independence. Uh, I'm supporting the Scottish Government's vision for a socially just and sustainable Scotland based on a well-being economy that is ultimately an independent nation within uh, the European Union. I'm doing this by providing both paid and unpaid support to Scottish Government as an advisor on natural capital policy and as a member of the Agricultural Reform Implementation Oversight Board. I'm also now actively supporting climate campaigning groups, starting locally with Huntley Climate Action, where I live in Devon Projects, building on my work as a volunteer director of the Huntley Development Trust. I'm also learning more about what I can do further afield, for example, for example supporting the new Green Deal Rising. Uh, one of my postdocs um, uh, is a member and we're doing a skills swap and she's uh, telling me about everything she's learned from her masters on activism and her experience as an activist while I share what I know about uh, ecosystem markets linked to her role. And all of that's building uh, and what I'm doing as a volunteer research lead for the IUCN UK Peatland Programme and my volunteering work for UNEP's Global Peatlands Initiative and as the role that I have in my SRUC centre, paid of course. So yeah, I'm doing a few more things than I was doing before. Uh, but uh, I would suggest still that each of these existing roles are still fairly safe ways to try and make a difference. But playing safe won't always be enough to keep us safe from climate change. I want to do more. I realise that these are very much baby steps, and I'll probably stumble and fall many times before I'm able to do anything meaningful. But I want to get off the fence, and I want to start being part of the solution. So to conclude, what do you see when you hold the mirror up to your own attempts to achieve impact? I hope that you're not falling quite as far short as I feel I am. 
but what do you think? Are you doing enough? And if not, what are the excuses? What are the assumptions? What are the prejudices uh, that you can uncover? And what could you do to do more?